The first reading has been changed. Um, it's now uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 8 to 16 and you'll find it on page 333 of the Old Testament sections of the church Bibles. It's the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The readings from John chapter 16 verses 1 to 15, which is on page 94 of the New Testament section. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Glory to you, O Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Thank you very much, Pat, uh, and especially for taking it in your stride, the last-minute change in Old Testament reading. (laughs) It's lovely to be here with you. Um, Let me just say a prayer. May I speak in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, If you live in Gleedless in Sheffield and you want to stroke a goat or get up and uh, close with a donkey, the place to head to is Healy City Farm. It's just down the road. And and a few years ago, Healy City Farm had a bit of a problem. They needed to uh, extend their building, but they didn't have any money. And at the time, there was a program, a series going on called Challenge Annika. Uh, You may remember it. And uh, Annika Rice was the the person who, who fronted it, And the way that it worked was she, apparently unaware of the task, was plunked somewhere to create a building in a couple of days. And the way that it worked was uh, Annika Rice, you may remember her, famous for her trademark smile and long blonde hair. She would trot along to uh, to the local builders' yards and merchants and say, would you mind giving us all the materials that we need? And then she'd also say, do you happen to know any tradesmen who who would be available the next couple of days to volunteer their time? And so that's that's how it worked, and that's how it worked on this occasion. Um, At at the time, we had had a couple of small children, and we got wind that this was happening in Sheffield. So we jumped in the car on the Saturday when it was due to finish and drove across to to Healy City Farm, only to find that, like a lot of miracles, there was a big crowd and there was nowhere to park. So so we came away again, a little bit disappointed, but it had been done. She had succeeded in doing it in two days. She'd pulled off a sort of modern miracle. When you look at the Gospel of John, you realize it hasn't been sort of thrown up and put together in a couple of days. Uh, It's a beautifully crafted piece of writing. More than the other gospel writers, it seems to have been curated. Uh, John has been quite selective about the material that he's included. In fact, if you look at the very last two verses in, in the book, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So John has been selective. He's curated his material. But interestingly, he has chosen this particular miracle of Jesus 
as one of only seven in his entire gospel. The other gospel writers seem to have realized the significance of this particular miracle because each of them has included it as well. It's the only miracle, in fact, that is repeated in all four gospels. And each one makes a particular point. Each one of these seven miracles in John makes a particular point. And together they allow us to build up a big picture of reality, a reality that is as real today as it was then. And an important part of that big picture is to appreciate the four things mentioned in those last two verses of the book. First of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Thirdly, through Jesus, we may have life. And fourthly, the key to that is for us to simply believe. So the question is there, why is this sign, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, so popular and seemingly so significant? On the face of it, it's a very simple story. I dare say a hundred years ago, when every small child in the country uh, reluctantly went to Sunday school, they would be able to tell you the bare bones of the story. which is, of course, that Jesus was there. Uh, There were five loaves and two fish, and a small boy gave him to them. And Jesus miraculously multiplied all that so that the 5,000 people were fed to the point where they didn't want any more. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers that the uh, disciples had to go and uh, pick up. So there it is. At one level, it's a very simple story. And as William Barclay puts it, Uh, little is always much in the hands of Christ. Little is always much in the hands of Christ. But it's one of those stories where closer inspection reveals more. And if it didn't, it probably wouldn't have made John's top seven miracle collection. uh, And there wouldn't be much of a sermon to preach either. So what I want to do is tell the story again with a bit of background and observation of detail. An interesting place to start is with the location. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's likely that where he was was in Capernaum, which is thought to have been his base during his public ministry. In Matthew 9, verse 1, it says of Jesus that he crossed the water and came to his own town, which is referring to Capernaum. And Capernaum at the time was a small fishing village of perhaps 1,500 people. Where did the 5,000 people come from? How did they appear in an area like that? Well, in verse 4 it says, the Passover was near. And the most likely explanation was that these were pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem further south, for the Passover festival. Historians think that the crowd followed Jesus on land around the top of the Sea of Galilee in a clockwise direction uh, to his landing point at Bethsaida where there was a grassy plain. Uh, They'd have been able to see Jesus as he sailed in the little boat for about four miles across the water. Why were they following him? Well, verse 2 tells us 
because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus was something of a celebrity. People wanted to see more. They were curious. This man was apparently someone who could provide for their physical needs. A Derbyshire can get very busy on a sunny day if you go out there in the car for a walk. However, it's always amazed me how you park the car and you walk about 200 metres in any direction and the the masses seem to have disappeared. So Jesus uh, took a similar approach and decided to go up the mountain a bit with his disciples to sit down to get away from the crowd. And as he sat there, he had a plan. And in verse 6 it tells us he himself knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do. He realized, as he looked down the mountain at the assembled masses, that this was the place, this was the time, the opportunity to perform a sign, a miracle, that would live on in the minds of followers for thousands of years. But before he got on with the sign, and this is a little detail in the story which is easy to overlook, he decided to test Philip. And in the hearing of the other disciples, he asked him a question to see how we would respond. It was a test. It was not a pass-fail test, but it was a sort of gentle inquiry to assess where Philip was on his journey of faith and on his understanding of, of who Jesus was. And the question Jesus posed is this. Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? That's the question, simple enough. Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? And how did Philip respond? Well, he gave what you might call a fast response, almost like a knee-jerk reaction, the sort of response that most people would have made. Philip was a local man, and he knew the price of things in the local markets. And so he says, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little and then in brackets, never mind the fish. It was a statement of fact, a statement of the obvious, but it was also saying to Jesus, no can do, this is impossible, Uh, we're in a bit of a sticky spot here, and I can't see any way out of it. But immediately in the story, we are shown an alternative response to the question, the question, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Andrew has a contrasting approach. He thinks slow instead of fast. He looks around and takes in the wider situation. He perhaps realizes that to say to Jesus in any situation that it's hopeless and impossible is a bad idea because he's realized that when Jesus is involved, amazing things often happen, things that are out of the ordinary And maybe there's a warning here for us. When we're faced with situations in our own lives, avoid the knee-jerk reaction of Philip. And instead, to take time to respond slowly, as Andrew did, remembering that if Jesus is involved, amazing things can happen. So Andrew spots a boy at the picnic, a boy with a picnic, five barley loaves and two fish, This was a small amount, just enough for him. Probably two small pickled fish. The area was well known for pickling little sardine-sized fish at that time. So he had his two fish, and he had 
a few small pieces of bread. I think calling them loaves is a bit uh, of an exaggeration. It was nothing like the five loaves of sardo from your artisan bakery down Charaville Road that you might struggle to get home without a big bag. Nothing like that. And Andrew brings the boy, and this is the point where the story turns around. It pivots on this point. Something small but essential is introduced into the situation that some had thought hopeless. A contribution from a boy. It was all he had to give, and he handed it over willingly to Jesus. And it enabled Jesus to perform the miracle. The implication is that without this starting point, this contribution given to Jesus, nothing would have happened. And this is the very heart of the story, I think. Perhaps the small boy, who's never mentioned in name, represents each of us. And what it says to us is this. When we look at ourselves, at our own resources and talents, our money, our time, and come to the conclusion that what we have is just about adequate for our needs and we're fearful about giving any more of it away. We are not thinking like the boy. For the message here is clear. Unless we are willing to give away what we have available to us to Jesus, he cannot do his work, and amazing things may not happen. Without the key, the engine doesn't start. Without the catalyst, the reaction never gets going. Another interesting thing about this story is the precise mechanism of the feeding of the 5,000. It's not made clear. I would like to have verse 11 expanded considerably. Um, There's a lot packed into those 28 words. Here they are. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to all who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. There we are, that that tells you something, but not everything. So what did happen exactly? Was there a puff of smoke and suddenly a mountain of bread and fish appeared? Or was it like Elijah in that story about the widow of Zarephath, with just enough flour and oil to make her and her son a last meal before they started to starve? And he asks her for some bread, and in return... A miracle happens. The jar of flour was never used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. I think the latter is more likely. Probably the way it worked was that Jesus carried round a basket with bread and fish as he moved among the crowd seated on the grass and it was never used up. The basket that never emptied. And isn't there a reminder for us here that this is the God of infinite resources and his provision for us never runs out. I mean, that on the face of it is the most likely way of understanding the mechanics of the miracle. But there is another different way of understanding what went on. William Barclay suggests an intriguing explanation 
uh, based on a different initial assumption, which is that the majority of the 5,000 had some food with them, but were unwilling to share. That means clearly there were some who'd come to the disciples saying, we're in the middle of nowhere here, and we haven't got any food and we're hungry. But most of the traveling pilgrims who were on a long journey to Jerusalem would have come prepared for that long journey to the Passover festival. Barley bread was the food of the poor. People would feed animals with barley bread. Most people would make bread from wheat. So could it have been uh, that having given thanks for the barley bread and fish, Jesus set off to share it with the masses only to be met with a polite, oh, we're fine, thanks. Rather like the reaction I might have with my Aldi essential rich tea biscuits at a bring and share meal when you've got some uh, millionaire slices from Waitrose in your Tupperware. Barclay suggests that the miracle here was not so much in the increase in the quantity of bread and fish, but rather the more difficult thing, the transformation of the 5,000 people from, as he describes it, a crowd of selfish men and women into a fellowship of sharers. There was suddenly more than enough to go round once people, as the small boy had done, lost their fear of giving. So finally, as I finish, can I challenge each of you in the coming week to give God a small thing, and that is five minutes of your time each day for reflection and prayer. And in those times, ask God specifically two things. What do you want me to give? And what do you want me to change? And as you reflect and pray, think about the different areas of your life, about family life, about social and friendship networks, about your work life, about the resources at your disposal. He might point to something that seems small and insignificant, but as we have seen, offering the small thing may be all that God requires to do something amazing. I mean, Challenge Annika and, and similar programs might bring out the best in people, might restore some faith in human nature, but if we can regularly offer what we have and are to God, society can be transformed. Let me pray. Lord, in this coming week, as we reflect and pray, would you put your pointing finger for each of us on something that needs to change, on something that we need to give? In Jesus' name, amen.